But I want to ask you a question. This is a personal question. Um, has God ever told you to do something like, and you totally understand what he's asking you to do, but then you were like, what? Lord, you want me to do what? Has that ever happened to you all? Okay, thank you, whoever said yes, because I thought, it's just me, and God does some strange, talks to me, kind of strange. So, today's message, it results from an overflow from Pastor Bobby's series on love. And for the past few weeks, while he was talking about love and going that route, God was speaking to me about diversity. And really, with the diversity, it's about how do we personally address it within ourselves regard, and, and in, within the church body. And during prayer, he showed me a new revelation regarding this topic from a seemingly unlikely set of scriptures, which I'll tell you in a second. And he pointed out an illustration, which we're going to take a look at right now. Do you remember as a child when you or maybe even adult, when you went outside and looked up into the stars on a night where you just, everybody see stars. And, and, and I don't mean like you're living in a city and you open the window and you look out and you go, oh, there's a star. No, I mean like going outside far away from the city limits and, and you look up at the stars. But, but not just that, I mean going out on a night, maybe when it's cold and there's no humidity and you have little to no cloud cover, and you're at a location with a, a magnificent view. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so it would be something like this. Okay, dark, yeah. Hey, Jesus is behind us in the cross, so that's cool. So, and not only is it dark, and you kind of feel the little cool coolness, but you, maybe if you listen, you can hear crickets in the background. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Hear it? Feels good. Yeah, and so when you look up in the sky, you see something like this. Yeah, yeah. look at that. I know it looks fake, but that's a real pictures or video of the Milky Way over this, this house. And you see that band of clouds right there in the middle? I remember as a kid thinking those clouds prevented me from actually seeing into space, like it's blocking my view not realizing that, that it's actually the shape of our galaxy. And those are, those are stars and everything else. It's, I mean, that is cool. I thought I was missing what my eyes were actually seeing. And it's astonishing to know that there are over 100 billion stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. And yet, what you glimpse when you look like that and on a clear night with your naked eyes, you can only see 10,000 of these stars in our galaxy. The Milky Way is immensely diverse and consists of various stars and objects that we can see, such as the red dwarfs, white dwarfs, black holes. Well, you can't actually see black holes, but we know they're there, and so, but they're, they're there. You can see neutron stars, constellations, and a host of other amazing things. Let's not even forget planets. Thank goodness we have those. And I love this view. God's creation is described in Psalm 19, 1 through 4, saying, The heavens declare the glory of God, 
The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. This heavenly diversity that you see behind me, it can teach us a lesson here on earth. There's an estimated 7.6 billion people on our planet. And God created us to be just as diverse with our brothers and sisters as we see displayed behind me. All right, let's get back to daylight. Uh, yeah, let's deal with a few things in the sunlight. Who got it? Who got the pun? Okay. Sun, S-O-N, light. Let's deal with Let's have Jesus enter the picture now. Yeah. Amen. So I'm going to change channels a little bit from outer space to right here on earth, talking about rocks. And if you read the prayer letter, or the weekly letter that we send out as a church, um, you, you know that I loved rocks as a kid. And I once dammed up a stream, uh, a creek, by piling rock after rock after rock. And I got a, a deep pool, and it was cold water, and I stayed in there way too long. I started turning a little blue, but that's, you know, I was a kid, loved it, loved it. I'd also spend time collecting quartz. I'd collect marble and even anthracite, which to you non-WVU people happens to be coal. Yeah. And I also did my best to search for nuggets of copper or gold. Yeah. And I never discovered one. But no, no. But I did, I did find lots of fool's gold, which was probably highly appropriate for my young age and what I was actually trying to look for. It was what it was, you know? One thing I do recall is picking up stones that were semi-buried in the mud or dirt. The top looked great, but when you flipped over, you saw some residue, some dirt. It was dirty. The stones I would pick up would be dirty. They had to be cleaned. And until they were clean, they did not have the full brilliance that only half the stone revealed. So having a prejudice, no matter what the type, is similar to the dirty stones in our lives. Dirt covers our brilliance. Rod Sterling, uh, the creator of the Twilight Zone, he said this about racism. Quote, the worst aspect of our time is prejudice. In almost everything I've written, there is a thread of this. Man's seemingly palpable need to dislike someone other than himself. See, God displays diversity when we look up, but with only 7.6 billion people here on earth, we do a poor job by having prejudice against diversity. And it's not just skin color, it, but it includes how they talk, what they do, where they live, who their friends are, uh, ind you know, individual social norms they may have, and everything about the person that does not make them just like you or me. And many brilliant theologians, authors, and even normal people just like us, you know, we've discussed this topic 
multiple times in the past. And unfortunately, it may continue until Jesus finally does return. But today, I want to remind each of us that there is no biblical basis for an Asian, a black, a Hispanic, or even a white church. Our series on love, it compels us that we leave no stone unturned. This message is not one of browbeating or condemnation. No, it's one of hope. It's one of excitement, encouragement, and even reconciliation. If what I say makes you a bit uncomfortable or perhaps triggers a response within you, that's okay. Because we're in this together as we inwardly look to see if there's anything that might be hiding under a rock. So I already mentioned that God showed me a new revelation regarding this topic coming from a seemingly unlikely set of scriptures, which is really Acts chapter 10. But before looking at the actual story, I want to provide some scripture that supports why God showed me Acts chapter 10. So Timothy 3, 16, 17 tells us the following. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. John 3, 16, 17, very famous verses for, for Christians goes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And according to Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So these verses are just but a few of the ones why God showed me Acts chapter 10 and, and when we examine what Cornelius did and discover um, looking into regarding diversity and prejudice. And it lays out a three-point path that helps with healing our own individual prejudices that we may have. You know, the stuff that's hiding underneath your rocks. And one last thing before we actually jump into it. I want to prov provide a little bit of historical background. And I don't want you to think that any form of prejudice towards another is skipped over or not encountered in the Bible. And understand that in Jesus' time, just like our own time, different groups couldn't stand one another. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Both of them hated the Gentiles. And attitudes towards the Roman occupiers were extremely intense with the Jewish people. So much so that it, there's a, recorded at least three insurrections or wars between the Jews and the Romans. So let's just conclude that the Jews were extremely prejudiced against the Romans. Okay? We're good? All right, so let's look at Acts chapter 10. Now, I, I'll tell you, I'm going to be reading a lot and then giving some commentary. Probably more than we normally read during 
normal service, but it's imperative that you really understand what's happening here. We have uh, this luxury of just knowing stuff because we have the whole Bible. But had you been there, it would have been wild. So let's start at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all of his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision, and he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! When Cornelius stared at him in fear, what is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. And he told them everything that happened and sent them to Joppa. All right, I'm going to stop here because I want you to really catch this, pick up what's happening as we look at these first few verses because amazing things are taking place. And we see this scene unfolding like we're watching a movie. And like I mentioned, we already know the end of the story because, and we have insight and knowledge. But when it happened, if you could place yourself right there when it happened, you would need to note three really important things. The first is Cornelius is a centurion, a Roman soldier from the Italian regiment. It's not like he was some conscript that the Romans needed some Jew guy to kind of take over and be put in this spot as the one who's in charge of everybody. No. Cornelius was connected. Like, he was like a made man because he's from Italy. That's where he is. He is connected. Number two, there was no Catholic church back in Rome or Italy. <laughs> yeah, that's right, John. There was no Catholic church back there. So it's not like Cornelius had this great working knowledge of God, of Jesus, and definitely not the Holy Spirit. It wasn't there. But he had to have had an open spirit and a desire to know more about God to be at this place spiritually because he hears God. And the third thing, Cornelius was a God-fearing Gentile. And not only that, but he and his family and at least one other soldier that's documented were as well. They prayed they worshipped, and they were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They were different. It's actually mind-blowing if you think about it. All right, so let's pick up back at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to a roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. 
And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was pondering and wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Verse 19. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And at this point, the men answered Peter and they explained to him what happened to Cornelius and that they were told by an angel to go to this house. Verse 23, then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. All right, so the events here just keep getting more and more intense. The intensity is like amped up to 11. It is, it is borderline nuts. Check this out. Peter, from church history, Peter is considered the apostle to the Jews, not the Gentiles. Yet, this is the guy that God first uses to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It's hard to fathom. And let's review. Peter starts his day, his time with God supernaturally, spending time in prayer with God, being with God. But he was also naturally a little bit hungry for food. So he goes up on the roof to pray, and he has a dream about all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds coming down and laid out before him. And many of these, they're unclean. I can't, he's got to stay away from them. He can't have them. And God repeats his dream to him three times and basically states, you can eat whatever is on here. In other words, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And Peter, being the good Jew, he says, I'm not eating this stuff. I can't eat it. I can't. And God replies three times, get up, or perhaps wake up. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I personally find it amazing that Peter once again has to be corrected or reminded about an issue three times. And at the same time, this new revelation was a game changer for him. No doubt about it. Because it changed everything he ever believed. And maybe for it to sink in, I mean to really sink into the core level, this vision had to be repeated three times. And the command in verse 13 is so very important, but I'll get to that in a few minutes. So let's continue looking at Peter going to Cornelius' house. Continuing on verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. So Peter's taking some of his crew with him. It's like, I need witnesses, or I need protection, maybe? But some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius is just bringing more people in, which again is just amazing. And while talking to him, verse 27, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, y'all are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit Gentiles. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. This moment is phenomenal and could not have happened if Peter had not yielded to God's will. Peter publicly acknowledges that these people, these Roman Gentiles, enemies of the Jews, are not unclean or impure. Think about it. He brings some of his core believers with him, and, and they find a house full of Gentiles, which he decides to go into. From his initial time spent in prayer, he was able to obtain the heart of God for these people. Peter was willing to break their tradition and the mores of his community to do exactly what God instructed. He risked cultural alienation to be in obedience with God. Bottom line. Verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And at this point, Cornelius told Peter what had happened from the verses 1 through 7, 1 through 8. He also says that they are ready to listen to everything the Lord has commanded him, Peter, to tell them, the Gentiles, the Roman Gentiles. And had we been there at that moment, um, I would imagine Peter and his group would have had looks of unbelief or shock on their faces. It was new, all new. Verse 34, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And after that, Peter begins to unfold the life of Jesus beginning from John the Baptist and proceeding through everything they saw him do within his ministry, seeing the Holy Spirit come and rest on Jesus and how he went around doing good works and healing people. And he continued to describe even more, such as like Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection. And he also states how God instructed them to go out and preach to people. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, or the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even onto the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely, no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water, for they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This event 
is regarded by scholars as the first conversion of a Gentile in the New Testament, the very first one. The significance of Peter, quote, crossing the lines is not trifle at all. And you may ask, well, why? Well, first, there's a realization in verse 28 when Peter admits to a reset of his own inner core prejudices. When God says to Peter that he cannot call anyone impure or unclean, and when Peter adopts it, it sets off a myriad of new personal revelations. It's against the law for Peter to even associate with these Gentiles. But now he's not bound by that man-made law. Even so, in verse 29, you can hear the questions in his voice asking, why did you send for me? It's almost like he's saying, don't you know that we're not supposed to be together? Yet, he may have wondered that, but he wasn't intimidated to stop doing what God's plan was. He pushed through. In verse 44, Peter sees how the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. And his own traveling party, they're quite frankly astonished. Shocked. And finally, he further throws caution into the wind by having a willingness to stay longer with them in spite of what his culture tells him to do. See, now there's no separation between him and them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not Jew and Gentile any longer. So when addressing the problem of prejudice, God showed me a simple plan found in verse 13. God's order to get up Peter, kill, and eat. And as we take a closer look at these three commands, I'm asking you that you personally peer deep into our own, your own souls, to see if you have any dirt residing underneath your own rocks, your own foundational rocks. So the first statement is one of recognition. Peter goes up to the roof to pray and has a felt need of being hungry at the same time. He falls into a dream where he's shown multiple animals that can feed his body. And many are considered unclean per his cultural beliefs. And God first says to Peter, get up, Peter. It's very important that God uses his name and tells him to get up as this focus is personal. There's no mistake that this command was not meant for anyone else in the house. It's very personal. It's to Peter. And this revelation regarding the animals is not meant for another person in the house at all, but only, only him. This charge is profound and shocking because Peter must now accept the fact that he's being called to make a personal change. A personal change against everything he ever believed. From this moment on, he cannot call another person unclean or a second-class citizen. And that idea had to be difficult for him. And we see that it was because he wrestled with God three times in a dream. 
God repeating the dream three times and said, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this first command to get up Peter was a stretching mandate for him to accept. A new message and direction in his life to remove the dirt that he had covering the foundational stones built within from his whole life history. This is the moment where God, who knows you, calls you to personally examine yourself. The second statement is one of reaction. The next thing God commands Peter to do is kill. Now, this action may seem a little harsh, but Peter must react and kill the animal so that he may gain nourishment. That's in the dream. But again, Peter waking up and hearing a dream three times understands that this dream is really about people. He knows it. But he also knows that he doesn't actually have to go kill a person. He must kill the prejudice that he harbors to the ones that were considered unclean. And Peter's previous thoughts regarding the Gentiles had to be killed. Not reserved, not placated, but killed. And it was the only way that he could go to Cornelius, accept him, and observe how God moved among them. He actually had to be brave, if you think about it, to kill that prejudicial animal that was within. Consider Jonah. Jonah absolutely did not want to do what God's mission for his life was, to go to Nineveh and get him saved. Eventually he did go, but the route there was very curious to say the least. Yeah. And you know, when Jonah's there, he's constantly complaining to God about why do you have compassion on those people? And even at the end of the book, he's still complaining to God about it. Jonah is an individual who never killed that prejudicial mindset that was within himself. Never. But like Peter, we have to recognize any prejudicial feelings that have been influenced by our own traditional views and culture. And then we have to kill them. And this reaction is only possible if we ask God to supernaturally intervene and remove it from within us. The third statement is one of response. The last command God tells Peter to do is eat. Eating provides us with nutrients, keeps us alive, and supplies us with what we need to grow. And when God tells Peter to eat, it becomes the crescendo of his whole plan, and Peter's life changes. See, it's one thing to recognize what God reveals to you. It's another thing to personally react to what God tells you to do. But it's a whole new level when you respond to others with what God is doing within you. And that response is how Peter ate. He demonstrated eating by actually going to meet Cornelius and his family by casting aside his reservations and interacting with these Roman Gentiles, by observing the Holy Spirit falling on these new believers, by ordering them baptized and remaining with them for a few days afterwards. 
He saw a whole new side to God's love and personally grew in his faith. I can promise you that the Peter from a week earlier would not have been with those people. But on that rooftop, he received a new outlook on life and responded to God's direction. So when God deals with our own prejudice and we come to our own command to eat, it will likely look different for each person in here. How and what he tells you to do will likely be tailored to your experience. What I can say, however, is that it will be meaningful, profound, life-giving, and you will grow more into being like Christ. So I want to share a little personal testimony just to help you understand how these three commands of get up, Peter, kill, and eat are inspired and pertain to really any form of unrighteous prejudice. Okay, so this will be a stretch for some of you all, but in case you haven't noticed, I'm a white guy. (laughs) And growing up as a white kid in both Pennsylvania and Virginia, my outlook on life was shaped by many different experiences. No, No fault of my own, it was just how I was raised. And similar to Peter, the past cultural influences and traditions shaped certain thought patterns and behaviors that I considered acceptable. Now, growing up, I moved all over the place, and I lived in mixed communities, and I would have been the first person to say, I was not prejudiced at all against anyone. But unbeknownst to me, I had issues underneath my rocks. In 1996, I attended a Promise Keepers uh, men's conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where more than 44,000 men gathered. And a prime tenant of the Promise Keepers movement was a call for racial unity. And at that time, I was already a signed, sealed, and delivered, you know, I'm yours type of Christian. I, that's, that's what it was. But like Peter on that rooftop... God needed to work something out of of the shadows within my own soul. He did. So on that first day of this conference, I was sitting up near the top row of the stadium. I was looking down on the men who were there. You know, they were praying. They were worshiping, singing. They were learning stuff. And the whole time, I'm, I'm thinking... What a bunch of happy, clappy weirdos. I mean, I'm not proud of it, but, I, but that's what I was thinking. That's where it was. I was just like, man, I, I thought those guys were kind of like maybe faking it, you know? The real men are sitting up here, and the weirdos are down there. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. But, but a black man named Bishop Joseph Garlington he preached a message about prejudice and reconciliation with one another. And something inside switched. It's like a light, literally like a light switch. Something inside switched. And by the second day, probably the end of the first day maybe, but definitely by the end of the second day, I was down on the stadium floor. I'm looking up at everyone else going, man, you guys do not know what you're missing down here. And it was wonderful. I mean, it, just, it was epic. 
And I don't use that term like, like, don't even use that term lightly, thank you. I appreciate that. You see, like Peter in his dream, I felt the spirit move within and say, get up, Billy. And getting up made me actually leave my safe, comfortable stadium seat and go down onto the floor. And there was where I completed the next step. When Peter heard kill, it wasn't an actual animal that God provided, but the metaphoric animal of prejudice that resided deep inside. And perhaps you know the one I'm talking about, the one that stays hidden, is in the control, maybe in a cage, buried and tucked away real deep. Well, that animal was recognized and killed on that day. Bishop Garlington prayed for our eyes to be opened for reconciliation, and the animal was gone. Finally, when Peter heard, eat, he responded. At this moment, I knew that it was the same for me as well. At that moment, a few thousand guys were down on the floor. We, we looked totally different in the natural. And we started to look at one another. And I, I don't mean like, like looking, looking. I mean like peering deep. We were looking, really seeing each other as God sees us. First Samuel 16.7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that's where we were. We were looking on each other's hearts. It didn't matter what we, quote, looked like. We were seeing each other in a whole new way. We were brothers. There were high fives going on. There were handshaking. There was like hugs all around. Some of you non-huggers, you'd have been hugged. I'm telling you. <laughs> Just the way it was. There were, there were men like apologizing for the way they thought and apologizing for past, like past, past stuff. It's like, dude, you know, but it was amazing. And there were a lot of tears on that floor. It was phenomenal. See, the Lord does not care about what we look like in the kingdom of God. And the only people that should care about outward appearances would be those in this world as Christians, we are brothers and sisters united together, period, end of story. And perhaps right now, there are some stones which, have been, which you have hidden or been buried in the dirt, suppressed, not wanting to be drudged up, dredged up. Maybe something inside of you is stirring, and maybe you're getting a little bit riled up right now. And you don't want it. Is the Holy Spirit telling you to get up Peter or Mary or Steve or Thomas and so on? Is the Holy Spirit saying to you, it's time to kill or it's time to eat? In the dream, the meal Peter was shown to eat literally was meaty, meaty. God did not show him corn on the cob. He didn't show him bread, crackers, cakes, or even a vegetarian souffle. No, it was meat. And the reality was, Peter was about to embark on a very profound journey, changing his life and making very meaty decisions. He would digest something that had a lot of substance to it. 
He wasn't about to go hungry anytime soon. Not at all. So in conclusion, I want to go back to this dirty rock. Perhaps it's shiny on one side, yet dirty on the other. And regarding prejudices, do you have a stone inside that's left unturned or one that's buried trying to hide what's underneath? Is God telling you today to address something that's hidden inside? 1 John 2.9 states the following, Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So we cannot kid ourselves that bigotry is a corporate thing that's easy to remove. This sin has been around throughout recorded history and unfortunately, naturally, wants to survive. But as an individual, there is an easy solution if you're willing to submit to God's will. Prayer team, if you'll go ahead and come on up. The prayer team will be here for anything you might need prayer for. So please don't leave here today if you have a need or you want to know more about Jesus. But I also encourage you to come and receive prayer if this message specifically hits home. Do you feel the Holy Spirit telling you to get up? Maybe it's time to kill those former feelings. Maybe it's time to eat the rich meal that God is providing. If you all will, stand up with me, please. I want to pray for you all in the same vein that Bishop Garlington did for me all so long ago. Father, today I ask for those who want it, that you will reveal your vision to our eyes, that we see people the way you see them, each with inherent value, each as one whom you came and died for, each as a child of God, a brother and a sister. Help us to be the ones who, like Peter, personally take this revelation to others to make a difference in our communities. Let us be lighthouses, people of reconciliation, and the ones who understand that God shows no partiality, so that anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.